podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. We're continuing a series um, called The Resurrected Life. And as Pastor Wayne says, said last week, uh, that this series was planned for us as a local congregation after we went through the book of Judges. This downward spiral of sin and how it destroyed and ate away at uh, that, the nation, the people of God. And uh, when we ended the book of Judges, it ends with this emptiness. It ends with this brokenness. It ends with this hopelessness, if you will. But it also pushes you towards... Their need of a Messiah, a king, a one who is coming, who's going to make it right and is going to rule over his people and it pushes you towards Jesus. And the reason why we wanted to do this Resurrected Life series is for us to remember who we are in Christ and what Christ has done and what does it mean to live in the power of the resurrection. Here's what I want to do. I want to make a couple of statements And then we're going to read Colossians and look at that. But I want these statements to be the background, if you will, of why we did this series, Resurrected Life. I took my first first youth pastorate out of Bible school. Dana and I just got married. I took it in California uh, with my dad. He had planted a church uh, in a little military town, if you will, and... uh, it was a, a good-sized church. It wasn't huge, good size, but the youth group, I, I ran the youth group, and it was about 50 or 60 kids, and it was just, in, in my view, a very just suburban, uh, mostly white youth group. Good kids, good kids. I would say... They, they loved Jesus. They were excited about Jesus. Good kids. I remember sitting down with them and um, talking to them in a, youth, in, a, in a youth group about inviting friends. Just, you know, what does it look like to invite friends? And out of that conversation, one of the kids said, listen, uh, Pastor, I know that we need to invite friends, but I don't want to bring my friends because I don't want them to ruin what we have here. We can laugh at that, and, and, and I think we should. But I also think it should be uh, eye-opening, because whether we would actually say it or not, many of us have that same view. Many of us live our lives in such a way to where we believe that this is something holy and right and good, and those people out there, if they come in, they'll ruin this. Because if we're honest, many of us believe that same reality. They are a bad influence on us. I went to my second youth pastor. I came out here to Phoenix. That's how I got out here to Phoenix. I came out here to Phoenix, my wife and I. I remember coming to a church called Phoenix Inner City Church. And it was right in the, the inner city of Phoenix. It was filled with diversity. It was filled with much brokenness. There was many of those who had testimonies of 
coming out of drugs and addictions and, and brokenness and gangs and violence and anger and murder and all the things that you could imagine. And this was going from that youth group to this youth group. And Dana and I loved it, although we had no clue what we were doing. I mean, just to illustrate that, our first outing for our youth group filled with gangsters, if you will, was taking them to a roller skating rink. What a white suburban thing to do, right? We put them in a caravan, we went up to a, uh, a roller skating rink, and they had no clue. Most of them had never been on roller skates, and they're wearing their pants sagged down to here, trying to pimp walk on roller skates. This doesn't work. It was funny, I'll give you that much. But putting them in that environment, they were also in an environment where they were in the suburbs. There's not many roller skating rinks, at least the one we went to, in the inner city. We put them out there, and there was some girls riding around, and they were making fun of these girls, and, and they didn't realize that these girls may not know how to skate, but they did know how to fight. So my first outing as a youth pastor is breaking up a fight where a girl is getting her head bashed in on the roller skating rink while I'm trying to figure out, oh, I'm getting fired for sure. This is, this is really going down. The cops get called. I'm trying to defend them. And expi- I mean, this was a whole new experience for me. But I will tell you this. I had never experienced the gospel in ways that I had when I was in those environments. Because I see these kids who are so broken and have so much sin, if you will, filled with Violence, drugs, all the kinds of things, that you, gangs that you could imagine, and except seeing their eyes be open to the reality of the gospel gave me a new insight. Except when church kids would come to our youth group, their parents wouldn't let them stay in our youth group. Because those kids were a bad influence on their kids. It didn't take me very long to get extremely irritated and frustrated with the reality of how many kids are raised in the church believing that the gospel is about being a good kid and being away from the kids that are bad influences on you but it didn't take me very long to realize I think those church kids were a bad influence on my kids Bad influence because they had become numb to the gospel. I remember thinking of the realities of going, when you preach the gospels in an environment, the gospel in an environment where people are really just raw, the kinds of questions that you get are filled with shock and awe. The reality of this, have you ever just stopped to think about what you believe or have you become numb to it? You believe that there is this God who created all things. And that this God created all things and man turned and rebelled against it. And this God sent his son in flesh. God came to the world in flesh. Born of, hear me, get this, of a virgin. You believe a woman had a baby without having sexual relationship with her husband. God sent Jesus through a virgin and this virgin bore a son this 
Son of God lived a sinless life and died on the cross and that in his death, in his death, we have forgiveness of sins. Now, not just that you believe that he died, but three days later, he rose from the grave. That this God became man, died, rose from the grave, and he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is ruling in the hearts of his people by his spirit. And hear me on this. He's coming again on a white horse. And he's going to make all things new and everything's going to be restored. And you hear that and you go, yes. But do you realize the foolishness of that statement? When you preach it to people who haven't heard it and haven't been numbed to it, they're like, really? Um... God, she, 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 are, are you sure she didn't, um, are you sure she didn't just lie and say, say she didn't because she didn't want to get in trouble, you know? Sure she didn't have sex? Are, are you sure that his death on the cross, are you sure that he was really dead? Are you sure that he came up out of the grave? Are you sure that you believe he ascended and he's, and he's still alive? Really? And you believe he's coming back on a white horse? And he's going to make all things new? And he's going to resurrect his people and make this whole world new? That's what you believe? Seriously? So because of the foolishness of the gospel, what we've settled for is just being the moral majority. Where we just tell people that Christianity is not about this Christ who's come and done these things. It's not about these events in which Christ has done this work. What we tell them is Christianity is a better way to live. This is not just something I put air quotes on. This is something that is said from our Christian television stations where somebody would say, even if I didn't believe Jesus did all those things. I would still be a Christian because Christianity is a better way to live. Um, no. Without Christ, we should be pitied. That's what Corinthians says. Corinthians 15 says this, that without Christ, without his death, burial, and resurrection, everything we believe and everything we say and everything we are should is foolishness. What we preach, what we declare, it's all foolishness. And verse 19 says we should be pitied. You see, what has happened to the gospel is that we have lost shock and amazement by the, the power of the gospel because we've been under, hear me on this, the bad influence of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
We've heard a different gospel called the prosperity gospel. And some of you, when you think of the prosperity gospel, you think of like big hair asking for money. That for sure is an extreme version of it. But there is also a very muted version of it that believes the same thing that many of us fall into. Moral therapeutic deism lives on five statements. One is this, God exists who created the order of the world and watches over humans. So God exists, he created everything, but he lives outside of it and watches over it. Two, God wants his people to be good, nice, and feel good. He wants them to be fair to each other, as is taught in the Bible. Quotes not true three the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself Four, god does not need to be particularly involved in your life unless you're going through something hard or you need him to resolve a problem and five good people go to heaven when they die they get out of here this is bad they go to heaven when they die this is not the gospel this is therapeutic moralistic deism this is the prosperity gospel muted the reality of the resurrection the reality of the work of christ should hear me on this should cause us to be amazed at what christ has done there should be a reality in us of going this is this is huge If we believe that this God created all things and he sent his son into the world because we rebelled against him and he came as a a, 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 through a virgin woman that he comes perfect sinless and lives a sinless life and dies the death we should have died and goes to the cross and pays the price for our sin and that this God raises from the grave three days later and that he's coming again to make all things new. This faith, without that at the center, is meaningless and futile. It's pointless. But here's the good news, friends, as verse 20 says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ indeed has been risen from the dead. So our faith is not meaningless and it's not futile because Christ has risen from the dead. Thus, you can see why Paul is arguing so deeply that the resurrection is foundational to his ministry and to us as a church, that Christ's resurrection is central. Because without it, we have no faith, we have no hope, we have no preaching, we have no pastoring, we have nothing. We should be pitied. But church, Christ has risen Jesus is alive. He is ascended and is seating at the right hand of the Father, and He is coming again. And this is where we see and find our power. This is where we see and find our hope in this. It's where we have assurance. Now, with all this in mind, as we read Colossians 3 1 through 17. I want you to stand, and I want you to remember as we are standing that this is God's Word. 
I want you to get this in your mind before I read it out, is that Paul is writing this book of Colossians to the church of Colossae. They're under attack. Heretical teachers are telling them that there is no God or that Jesus is not God. That his death, burial, and resurrection has no effect. And so Paul spends chapter 1, you should go meditate on this because you will soar in probably the richest Christology in all of Scripture, in my opinion. I mean, it's beautiful. The central figure of Christ, who he is. Then in chapter 2, it talks about that we are in Christ. And then it comes to chapter 3. It builds all of this Christology, all of this theology, if you will. And then chapter 3 calls us into not just lofty speech, but how does this hit us? If we believe all these things that we just talked about, how does it hit us? Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. If you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Can the church say amen to that? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexually immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And there is not Greek, nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy, beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which you indeed are called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you read chapter 1 and 2, which I encourage you to, hot in here or is it just me might just be me turn the ac on man when you read chapters one and two paul makes a ton of huge statements a ton massive statements about who christ is and that we are in christ 
And then he takes all of those statements from chapter 1 and 2 and makes it hit the ground saying, if these things are true, if you've been raised with Christ, if Christ is risen from the grave and you've been raised with him, if you are seated with him in, seven, in heavenly places, wow, that's amazing. If you are as close to God as Christ because you're in Christ. If all these things are true, these things should be what we set our mind on. Do you get that? You should set your minds on those things. You should set your heart and your affections towards those things. That everything in you should be directed towards this reality. That what Christ has done is true and you've been raised with Him. And you are seated with Him in heavenly places. If these things are true, they hit the ground in very real ways. Many people have tried to give a defense. For why the resurrection is true. I, I think they've given some pretty significant ones. I'm not even trying to down them. But I will say this. Many people have spent a lot of time. Especially when science started becoming the way we've determined the truth. Church had claimed and witnessed and displayed miracles for centuries. And then all of a sudden science comes around and discredits like, oh, really, you guys want to believe in all these miracles and stuff? And so what the church does is go, well, what we need to do is study science to prove the resurrection through science. And, and people have done good work on it. But I will tell you this. There also has been a decline since our minds and our hearts have believed this idea that what determines truth is science. What we have done is we've also seen a major decline in people even believing in miracles. Therefore, it's not that far of a stretch for them to go, the miracle of the resurrection. You want me to believe that? Though they've made defense, the other one that Scripture makes, which I love, is eyewitness. And many people, Scripture accounts all the people who saw Christ raised from the, from the dead, the people who witnessed it, the eyewitnesses that saw Christ's body raised from the dead. That eyewitness is powerful, but what you can see is over time as culture evolves, people look back at history and they start discrediting all of those who went before us and making them look ignorant, dumb, and discrediting their witness. And many people look back at the witness of those who saw Christ and go, they're just lying, they were doing a cover-up, there's a whole big controversy. The other witness is Scripture. Scripture is truth. Can we say amen to that? Scripture is the greatest truth. But I will tell you this. Many people have discredited Scripture and look at Scripture and just say, well, it's just a book. And even with all of these great defenses, the one defense that the, the scriptures continue to put at its forefront, that we continue to downplay, and I believe is Probably, arguably, the greatest defense, if you will, is that Christ uses the witness of His church to be the greatest defense that He is still alive. 
That the way God has chosen to display and continue to show that he is alive is through the witness of his church. That the people of God who were once dead have been made alive. That they were once far from him and they have been made alive. And through the testimony and the witness of his church, there is this ongoing powerful testimony that shows that once dead things are now made new through his resurrection. And what Colossians 3 does is takes all the beautiful theology of chapter 1 and 2 and shows that through that, the way we can see the witness of our minds being set on that and our hearts being transformed is that the resurrection changes people. Anybody been changed in here? You, my friends, are a powerful argument and a powerful testimony and a powerful witness of the resurrected Savior. That your life coming out of dead things and into new things is a powerful testimony. Oh, I know that what we really believe is that the way in which we're going to see a powerful testimony, if we have the church kids kind of incubated in the church and they're going to show what good kids look like. But I'm going to tell you this. The most powerful testimony of the resurrection may not be being incubated in some suburban church right now. They're probably in a drug house somewhere. They're probably a prostitute on the streets right now. That God could take the most broken, dead things and make them alive by the power of His Spirit. This is a powerful witness of the testimony of Christ. Oh, there's nothing against somebody being raised in the church, but I will tell you this. Stats are pretty, pretty overwhelming of how many kids who are raised in the moral upbringing, run. Why? Because maybe they think the gospel is just about being good and not about having the power of God's Spirit dwelling within them, being seated in heavenly places. Maybe they're not hearing the gospel at all. The evidence of the resurrection As we see in chapter 3, the evidence of the gospel, as we see in chapter 3, is that those who have their minds set on Christ, they live in this way, this new way. And here's the statement I want to make. Hopefully you can find this on the slides. More Christians. Christians are more concerned with with not doing dead things than they are about doing resurrected things. Let me say that again. The majority of Christians are more concerned about not doing dead things than they are about doing resurrected things. We love to talk about how many things we don't do, but the reality is this text focuses very little on the sins of the world and focuses on what does it look like to live a resurrected life. Oh yeah, you're right. There is a part in there and I want you to look at this with me that the power of Christ's work does for us. It gives us 
hatred for sin, but notice, it's the hatred for sin in me, not in them. Look at, look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, and when Christ who appears, life appears, you also have then, verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly, where? In you. Isn't it amazing how we love to make our focus how broken everything is out there? We get so distracted by the sins of the world and how bad things are becoming out there. Why are we so shocked that dead people do dead things? Why? And we get so wrapped up in the decaying of sin in our culture and in the world around us. And we're so consumed with everything that is out there and all the death that is around us. And nobody listens to us. Why doesn't anybody listen to us? We stand there and we're so self-righteous in indignation. We're so angry. You all are sinning. Look at this. All this sin that's happening. And look at the decay. Look how it's breaking things. And nobody listens. Why does nobody listen? Because they see the sin in you. Just as clearly as you see the sin in them. And they laugh at a church that is consumed with the sin in the world and they're overlooking the hatred and sin in themselves. And nobody cares. The church has been so focused on the sin in the world that they have not been the ones leading in a great repentance. And why is that? Because primarily, Christians think it's about being a good person rather than a forgiven person. Like, what are we boasting in how good we are? When the reality is, when you look at this, we realize all that is there and all that is, if it wasn't for the death of Christ, those things would rule and reign and be over, and that what we need to be more serious about is putting to death or taking off the sins that are within us. And then, it talks about not just putting to death, but the biggest emphasis of this text is what does it look like to live a resurrected life. Look at verses 10 through 17. Verses 10 and 11 give us a great clue. Look at this. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its, creator, of its creator. Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but all. But Christ is all in all. Isn't it amazing that part of the resurrected life is living reconciled with those who are different than you? There's so many things that we could focus on in this list, but the one that seems most prevalent to me is not how divided the world is, because believe me, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You actually don't have to be that smart or discerning to see how divided our nation is and how things are falling apart. I mean, when you say it, 
can you just hear a corporate duh? Like, yes. There's more racism. There's more classism. There is more uh, hatred between men and women. The age gap, the generation gaps, there is not and has never been more division than there is now. It doesn't take much to see that. And we are so consumed with trying to figure out how we can reconcile all the things that are in the world when we've skipped the very first step. Church, why are we not reconciled with people who are not like us? Why is Sunday morning still the most segregated time? Why is it that churches across our nation are still broken off into race and class? And why is it that we are not demonstrating the very reconciliation that we're asking everybody else to demonstrate? Why? Because it only can happen when we see that reconciliation comes when all comes into Christ. That's what it says here. That in there, all of those titles and all of those things that divide, we become one. I cannot tell you how important it is for us as a church that as elders, how often we pray for us to be reconciled, for us to be a light to our community. That in this room would be Hispanic and white and, and black and Asian and all the kinds of races and age differences, young and old and economic differences, rich and poor and middle class and, and gender differences. And that all are being honored and all are being seen and all are being, but we're all sacrificing to be in this room. Can I just tell you, I mean, you have to know that Pastor Wes and Pastor Wayne could have and lead their own churches and preach far better and far more consistently without as much heresy if, if, if I was out of the pulpit, right? They are extremely amazing leaders, and it takes so much humility for them to give up those rights and for me to say, I can't just assert my power, but all of us need to sit at the same table on the same level and be elders and lead in a community because we all believe that doing that together is actually a better reflection for us of the gospel to a community that needs to see leaders leading together of different races and different backgrounds. We need to see that in the church. I want to see reconciliation. Why? That's what the resurrected life looks like. And under that, how does reconciliation take place? Well, then he continues to push deeper into it. It happens because the resurrected life is people filled with compassionate hearts. Kindness. Here's another one that's tough. Humility. Anybody who wants to be the central figure or elevate themselves or they just want to be around people who are like them or they just want to think they're better than everybody else and everybody else is just pride does not build reconciliation. It doesn't build and doesn't come from a resurrected life. Humble, humility, meekness, patience. Here's another one, bearing with one another. 
bearing with one another. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very fun. How many times do we just run as soon as it gets inconvenient? This other one, Paul seems to make a big deal out of. He says if someone has a complaint against another, they need to forgive each other. As Christ has forgiven you, you must forgive. And evidence of the resurrected life is forgiveness. Not just forgiveness where you go, it's cool, it's no big deal. I'm talking about the kind of forgiveness that really hurts and costs like Christ's forgiveness for us. I'm talking about the kind of forgiveness that really shows the power of what Christ did on the cross and not just easy things where you just forgive people who didn't really do much against you anyways. And if it's truth, they didn't even need your forgiveness because you just got offended too easy. I'm talking about forgiveness from people who really, really offended, really sinned against. The kind of forgiveness that hurts. Paul doesn't even seem to make it an option for the resurrected life. Matter of fact, he says if you live in the resurrection, you must forgive like Christ forgave you. And all of this. The highest of this is love. Love. This kind of resurrected life that us elders have been pushing into for this last four weeks, been crying out to the church, listen, this is what Christ has done, is only accomplished when the church is committed to, hear me on this, when your mind is set upon where you are seated. When you see who Christ is and where he is seated, you also see where you are seated. That's why verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly and that you should commit yourself to teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do in word or in deed and everything, give thanks to God. He gives us ways in which we need to keep our minds set upon who Christ is. His word needs to dwell within us. We need to get together and sing about it, what Christ has done. We need to think of and admonish each other in. We need to sing psalms and hymns. We need to declare these things to each other, and we need to do it with thankfulness in our hearts. Entitlement is not a part of the resurrected life. Thankfulness. Giving thanks to God for everything, good and bad. Church, you are surrounded by the resurrection. Christ has risen from the grave. Adam, the first Adam, through his sin, the whole world has sinned. But Christ has come and through his death and his resurrection, all of us have received life. His resurrection has given us new life. And he promises that by his spirit he sealed us for that day when he will come and he will rip the clouds open and he will come and restore all things and we will have resurrected bodies and we will live in the fullness of the power of that resurrection. Christ has resurrected. We will be resurrected. We are surrounded by the resurrection. We should live where we are seated. We should live resurrected. We should sing about it. 
We should be thankful for it. We should talk about it. We should admonish each other in it. We should be reconciled with those who are. The greatest testimony that we can have as the church is that we can be a witness to the world that God is alive. 